Adam was a godly man. He had recently wrestled with the decision to be um, an elder. In fact, I remember years ago sitting in my chair in my office and saying, hey, you know, you've been nominated to be an elder. What do you think about that? And I watched as he continued to just pour out these reasons why that wasn't a good idea. And then the Lord convicting him even as he says them and, and he, he answers his own objections and just watched through that process uh, beautifully and saw him then take upon himself that role because the Lord had called him, wrestling with it and coming to terms with it and beginning to serve and getting started as an elder in my church years ago. Then there was Bob, on the other hand, who was a fine person, a Christian, not a leader in the church. He was retired at this point and had been a leader in the secular world. He tended to be away for many months at a time. Uh, his potential impact for the kingdom seemed kind of limited when compared to someone like Adam and his ability to teach and to lead. And the truth is, they both developed cancers. And the reality is, one of them died, and one of them seems to have been healed miraculously. And it's not the ones that I would have picked. It's not the ones that I thought, oh, here is someone God is going to use. And apparently, my estimation isn't that important to God. And apparently, God doesn't always answer the prayers of the same faithful people to cure the same disease in different people. And as we come again for a second week to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, we see a passage about prayer and about healing, about elders and, and oil, forgiveness and praise, and the power of prayer. Now, most of you, I think, I would think are probably in a similar situation to me, is that you're, you're unclear about the power of prayer and, and how it works and why one is healed and, and one is not. And As we look at this passage, I don't think it's going to answer all of our questions. It's not going to clear up all of the confusion, even as we look at it for a second week. I think we could look at it for three or four more weeks, and it wouldn't answer all of our questions. But I do think as we listen carefully to this passage, and to what God is saying to you and I about prayer and the power of prayer, I think we can gain some more clarity. And I think you will find, as, as I, hope, I hope you find, as I have, that I have gained confidence in prayer. So read with me, if you would, James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 about the power of prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This is the Word of God. Lord, I pray you would bless our ears, our eyes, our hearts above all, that we would understand more of who you are, and that we would grow in our confidence before you, that we might engage you in prayer, and in many other ways, tap into the power that you offer. Uh, We pray, O Lord, that you would work And we have confidence you will do that because we come to you not in our own names or in our own strength or even with our own bare understanding. We come in the name of Jesus, trusting your spirit to work. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in the second week of looking at this passage, and don't worry if you weren't here last week, this should make sense. Uh, but I would encourage you, if, if, if you weren't here last week, to go back and, and revisit that passage sometime soon, because this all hangs together in this passage about prayer, where James mentions prayer in every verse that we just read, and half of the times that he mentions prayer, it is a command, pray. So there's, there's a whole message involved here, all of the verses together, and it's painful to break it up, but that is the reality that we have to face sometimes, unless you guys want to hang out for a few hours. Yeah, all right, yeah, amen. It's a beautiful day today, it is, isn't it? If it was like this last week, maybe we'd have kept going. But anyway, so this passage here, with this, this, all that it says about prayer, it in fact says so much that I realized over the last couple of weeks that it, it, it provides us a definition of prayer. As we walk through it, let's, let's, let's look at that, and, and, and as you grow in your understanding, as you embrace this definition and the facets of it, you're going to be positioned to tap into the power of prayer, because prayer really can unleash the power of God. The, the problem for us is that that often doesn't look like what we want it to look like or what we expect it to look like. But that doesn't change the fact that prayer is perhaps the primary way that we engage God and tap into that power. There's also His Word. There's also uh, the people of God and, 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 and worship, those kind of things. I don't want to diminish those. But here we are focused on prayer. And you can see the power of God. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Verse 16, pray for one another so you may be healed. Verse 16 continues, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then he points, as I mentioned last week, to Elijah, that great prophet. But he doesn't say Elijah's a prophet. He says Elijah has a nature, had a nature like us. He was, in other words, just a man. Just a human being. Like you and I, And he prayed earnestly, it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain. 
And then he prayed again. The sky poured forth rain and the earth produced its fruit. Its fruit. Echoing back to 1 Kings 17 and 18 and the story of Elijah there confronting the prophets of Baal and King Ahab and a drought ensued and then again at the, you know, having Queen Jezebel come after him and he runs away and seems to become depressed and feels like he's the only person around that's still faithful and basically says, God, just take me now. He's a man like us, right? A human being. Prone to the highs and lows. You see it all right there just in a couple chapters. So Elijah was like us. One thing that passage subtly emphasizes in 1 Kings 17.1 and in 18.15 and throughout that really Elijah's power was that he had tapped into God. And as a prophet, he had special revelation. God literally spoke to him clearly and, and said, do this, don't do that. Go here, do this, do that. And, and it's, it's captured, though, beyond that in just this expression that appears two times in 17 and 18 of 1 Kings, that Elijah stood before the Lord. And that ties in with the message of James here in our passage that he's calling us to stand before the Lord. He's calling us to engage God, aware of who He is, aware of who God is in our circumstances, whatever those circumstances are, that we are to engage God in all circumstances, aware of who He is to you, to me, in those situations, in that moment. That is the way that you tap into the power of God. And so last week, we kind of looked at that in, in two ways. We talked about the two extremes, really. Uh, if you are suffering, you engage God in prayer, aware that He cares about you. Right? And if you are at the other end, you know, you're feeling good internally, you're okay, you're content, all those kind of things, then you engage God singing praise, aware that He's the one who provided, He's the one who gives. So there's two extremes, right? And then now, it's interesting what James does here. He then goes to a very specific and troubling circumstance. He's talked about when you're suffering, when you're feeling good, and now he says when you are really sick. When you are really sick, verses 14 and 15 talk about it. He says, when you're really sick, engage God by asking for the elders to meet with you. Engage When, when you're really sick, ask God. You engage God by asking the elders to meet with you. Verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church. That's, that's one of the commands in there. Call for the elders of the church. Are you really sick? Call for the elders of the church. Ask for the elders. And that the sense of the sickness here is something that is most likely physically debilitating or incapacitating. You know, most likely someone is bedridden. That's why they're calling for the elders and not going to the elders. You know, they're calling for them because they're most likely bedridden. They're weak. Uh, the words are, are the negative of strength. The cluster of words that describe this. And such a person, James says, must act. Not by getting up or doing anything else, but actually, he says, by what? 
calling for the elders of the church. The elders are the shepherds of that local church under the chief shepherd, Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 1-4 really spells that out. They are the ones who care for the blood-bought flock of Jesus. Acts 20, especially verse 28-29, spell that out. The elders are, in other words, those spiritual leaders in the local body that are attentive to and care for, in particular, the relationship of the sheep to the shepherd, the chief shepherd. They're kind of under-shepherds. Physically present on earth to see, (laughs) to touch, to speak with those sheep. That's God's role for the elders. So when someone calls for the elders, because they are really sick, they are engaging God. That is, they have this humility to call for the elders as an act of faith. The sick person is essentially expressing confidence that God's Word, God's ways are trustworthy. That God cares for them through these fallible, imperfect men whom He has called. It's an expression of faith. That's that's what's going on here. You you Why do you go to the doctor when you have an ailment, when something's not right? Why do you go to the mechanic when your car needs fixing? Why do you call the plumber when your pipes are leaking or there's a funky smell in your basement that seems to be coming from the sewage or whatever it is, right? You call those people because you believe they are a part of the solution to the problem you're facing. You trust that they are there for a reason. God has put elders in the local church who walk with God's people. And in particular, he says in this passage, to to be with them when they are sick. In particular, he says what? To pray. When they arrive, they are actually to do two things. He says to pray over them and anoint them with oil. Look again at verse 15. And they are to pray over Him, anointing Him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we understand the prayer part, but what's with the oil? You ever wondered that? The only place in the New Testament that, that I can find that really comes pretty close to this, comes maybe put it this way, that comes closest to this, is when Jesus sends out the twelve apostles in Mark 6, verse 13, and they anoint the sick and heal them. Right? That's really the closest thing. There are examples, uh, say, of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, when he takes care of that guy who was robbed and beaten up on the side of the road. Remember, he takes him to the hotel, 
And, and he pours oil into the wounds, right? That, that's medicinal, you know, healing, treatment of literal physical wounds. This guy was beaten up. He's bleeding. And so they treated it with oil. Uh, but this passage here is about a sick person, probably weak, doesn't seem to indicate any, you know, open wounds. And it's anointing them with oil, not pouring in oil and wine, I think, was the other ingredient there in Luke 10. And, and if this was about a medical treatment, why would you call the elders? Why wouldn't you call a, a healer or someone more oriented towards the physical like a deacon? Someone who is there to, to help in more typically physical ways. In those mercy ways. It's a different word for anointing, so I don't want to be too dogmatic about it. Um, it's, it's, it's not the normal word for anointing. The, the one that we get the word Christ in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew, the, the anointed one. It's not that same word. It's, it's a word that's used about anointing Jesus' dead body as the women went to go with spices. It's the one anoint, where the the woman anoints Jesus' feet uh, with ointment and with her tears. But really, that's, that's the main places it's used. So there's perhaps a connection with death, but it seems to be more of, hey, this is what you do when someone has died to prepare them for burial. It was a tradition. And this seems to be more of some sort of expectation or hope or mark to say, we want this person to be restored. I can't find a way in here to, to justify the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church called extreme unction, where when someone is dying, you anoint them with oil to forgive their sins so they can die in peace. That doesn't seem to be in this text, but that is the doctrine of that church. I would disagree and say the expectation here is we are hopeful and optimistic as we anoint this person with oil and as we pray for them, we're looking for restoration, not death. So to me, if you look at this, what seems to be going on, okay, to, to summarize and bring it together here, what seems to be going on is that not unlike the Lord's Supper, there, there is some mystery here, but these actions are symbolic. That you take, for example, I think Pastor Shibu gave me this. Uh, somebody sells anointing oil. It's just oil. And, and you take some of this and you just put it on someone's head. Or you, you know, not, not flowing in rivers. You know, it's a little bottle. I'm not going to dump this whole bottle on your head. Right? <laughs> It's a symbolic action, not unlike baptism or the Lord's Supper. Those we believe have, have a spiritual effect underneath. This doesn't seem to rise to that level. But there is something to it that says, as the elders anoint this person with oil, we are setting them apart. We are marking them out as someone who needs special attention, God. We are setting them apart for prayer. We are setting them apart for Your attention, Lord. And we are attending to them too. They, they need you, Jesus. 
And those elders, the same way, they are representing the presence of God with that sick person. So both of those things together, in other words, are a way of engaging God. They are an expression of faith that God does work, that God has the power. And as you do those things, you tap into the power of God when you engage God, asking the elders and, and being anointed with oil, aware, listen carefully, aware that God heals according to His will. God heals according to His will. So you engage Him, aware that God heals according to His will. Look at verse 15 again. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If, if we only had this place in the Scriptures that talked about someone being healed, I, I would argue so strongly that God is saying you will be healed if you pray in faith. The problem is, this isn't the only verse. And, and by the way, if there are doctrines you hear from me or from anyone else that sound really, really good and that come really, really close to giving you what you really, really want without any fuss or bother, you know, without anything really you know, hard or challenging, look at the rest of Scripture before you hang your hat on that hook, before you entrust your future to that belief. Examine it carefully. Because that is what some will do with this passage. And I can, understand the, I can understand the rationale. If you just look at this passage, it sure does seem to say that if you pray in faith, God will restore and the Lord will raise him up. The thing is, even in the book of James, even in this letter of James, you have to look at what he's saying about faith. He's been talking about faith a lot, right? And I don't know about you, but I usually think in James, what do I think about when I think about faith? I think about faith and works, right? He spent a lot of time on that in chapter 2. Faith and works. You know, if you have faith, you do works. Faith demonstrates that you really believe. You can't just say you believe. It has to actually lead to something. But do you remember, interestingly enough, as we close out James's letter, do you remember where he started his letter? With faith. And the very first thing he said was, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Do you remember that? James 1, 2-4. Do you remember what he said right after that? James 1, 5-8. He said, if you lack wisdom, ask God and He will give it to you. But, you must ask in faith without doubting. Don't be double-minded. Question is, as you wrestle with this, which I'm sure many of you will, as you wrestle with what this means, you need to think about what is the faith in? What is the object I am trusting in? That's what faith means, trusting. Is it the outcome or is it something else? Because I would tell you as you look through James, what he says you should have faith in is not in the outcome you want but in the God who can bring about any outcome He wants. That's a key difference. Because when you fault someone for not believing hard enough because they don't get well, or when you believe, if I just believe 
enough, I will have this. You are saying, I believe in the outcome. That I am putting my confidence actually in my ability to bring about the outcome because I believe. Because it's about me and how strong my faith is in that outcome. And you are really not far from something very, very, very heretical. In fact, you are not far at all from not merely unbelief, but a strict atheism. Because if your confidence is in yourself, there is no room for confidence in God. And God made you to depend upon Him, not yourself. God made you to look to Him and worship Him and serve Him above all else, including yourself. That is the greatest place of human dignity is to reflect the God who created us and be who He wanted us to be. That faith that he is talking about is in this God. This God who heals according to his will. You remember Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3? We read about them, and they are bold in standing for the Lord. Right? You've got to bow down to this big giant statue of me, King Nebuchadnezzar says, and they say no. Everybody else... Everybody else bows down, and they're like, you know, the only people standing. It's like everybody else steps back, you know, and the volunteer's like, what? Oh, you know. And they are brought up to the edge of the fiery furnace, and they say, we believe our God is able to heal, able to, to, to rescue us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to disobey him. We're going to believe in him, even to death. And God rescued them, but he doesn't rescue everybody. God doesn't heal everybody. What James is talking about is this faith in God through those trials that would say, I'm going to believe in him, I'm going to trust him, yet he slay me. I will trust in him. Paraphrasing Job. Trusting that God is the key. Do you realize that's how Jesus walked? In the wilderness, in Matthew 4, as the devil came and tempted him, he said, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to take it into my own hands. I'm going to trust God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, 36-46, facing the trials that would come, Jesus prayed three times, Father, is there not another way for this to go about? Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. I told you last week, somebody rebuked me for for not praying, you know, and claiming that God would move the rain clouds away from our campfire with the Bible study, about 50 of us trying to have fun, right? And I prayed, Lord, if it's your will. And he rebuked me. Now I know, just, just reading that right now, I'm like, ah. So you would rebuke Jesus for saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Pray And lift your desires to the Lord. Pray for what you want and how you want it. And at the end, say, Lord, your will be done. And don't just say that. That's not a magic formula. Believe it. You will not tap into the power of God unless that's where you're at. Because if you're still holding on inside that this is what I really want, Lord, if you don't answer this prayer, I'm leaving you. God's going to be like, You can't serve me like that. 
You literally cannot serve God if you are holding on to your way. Because then you're serving yourself. And that's not the way God rolls. The awareness we need to have as we engage God, especially when we're sick, really sick, is that God does heal according to His will. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. And he prayed three times, Lord, take this away. And the Lord didn't. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. And he resolved, you know what? The Lord must have left that there for a reason to humble me. That's a pretty good conclusion. The prayer of faith, without doubting in God, led Paul to recognize that trial was making him stronger, giving him perseverance. Interesting how those things connect. Paul also, this is Paul, right, who was preaching so long, maybe you can relate, Paul was preaching so long one Sunday night that a young man fell out of a second story window and died. Do you remember this in Acts? A young man named Eutychus. Acts chapter 20. Paul raised him from the dead. A little while later, Paul left uh, Trophimus, one of his co-workers, ill at Miletus. 2 Timothy 4.20. Paul said to Timothy in his letter, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. 1 Timothy 5.23. Well, why didn't Paul just pray right then and say, Lord, heal Timothy's stomach? Lord, heal Trophimus. If Paul could pray for his own thorn and pray for these other people, which I'm sure he did, right? And God said, no. If you're praying in faith, not double-minded, if you are trusting in God, that will reshape the way you think about the outcomes. Right? And you will say, okay, if God's will can be, if, if God's will is ultimate, right? And if I'm praying, Lord, do this, and it doesn't happen, and I'm sincerely believing God, you could do this. You could totally do this then I have to come to terms with the outcome and say, maybe the Lord is saying, wait. Maybe the Lord is saying, you're going to have to struggle with this. Maybe the Lord is saying, I'm going to work perseverance in you. That's what's going on here. Just to cement that home, 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 1 John 5.14 This is the confidence which we have before Him, God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Not my will be done, but yours be done. And so one of the reasons, I think, that, that, that James is saying to call for the elders, right, is that these are, Lord willing, the men who have demonstrated godliness, who have walked with Jesus through trials and tribulations, who, who are following Him and, and, and discerning His will and walking with Him, and when they pray for you when you are suffering and sick, they're going to pray for you to be healed, and they're going to pray for God's will to be done. Which would include, most likely, Lord, through this situation, let them continue to be faithful to You to demonstrate your, your goodness and glory even as they go through chemo and face cancers and pain. 
Let him even dance a little bit. Go back and watch the video last week. You'll understand what this is about. Or maybe you won't understand it. Why is he doing that? Make him stop, mommy. Um, so the, that, that leads to then the, this, the, the third tweak to our definition of prayer. Now, prayer is an offering of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will with thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. So that's what, when you're suffering, you engage God by calling for the elders, aware that God heals according to His will. And our last point, and I'll try to make it brief, when you are in between. So James, James has said, you know, when you're suffering various trials, you know, when you're feeling good. He said, when, when you're sick, which is a subset of these. And now he says in, in, in his last part, when you're in every other situation in between, basically, is the way I take what he's saying here. And I, I think he started at those extremes and then went to, to sickness so that we'd be prepared for what he says here. Because it's kind of strange, especially for, uh, what is it, the 21st century? For, for those of us here in this age, and especially in Western cultures, James goes from those general principles and the extremes to the suffering, and now to prepare us for this. Listen to what he says in verse 16. What do you do? How do you engage God when you're in between? You confess to and pray for one another. Verse 16, confess, that's a command, your sins to one another, and pray, that's a command, for one another, so that you may be healed. Okay, who's first? It's time to confess your sins to one another. Just, no, I don't think that's what he means, okay? But it's not far from what he means. When you're in the in-between times, before, you know, it's not super, super hard, it's not super, super good, you're not really sick, this is the pattern he's saying. That, that you need to be in a regular habit of confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another so that you may be healed. And I would take that even as like, this is a preventative medicine. Because there are connections between sin and sickness. Not always. Jesus, in John chapter 9, the disciples were like, the man born blind, Lord, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither. This is for the glory of God. Right? So it's not always, but you also read things like, oh, I, I don't know, Ananias and Sapphira who lie to the Holy Spirit and are struck dead. That's kind of a form of sickness, is it not? You, you also read about in 1 Corinthians 11, after the part about the Lord's Supper that we say every time, the part that we don't mention most of the time, which is this is why some of you are sick and have died. Because you take the Lord's Supper without considering what it means. That's scary stuff. That seems kind of strange to us. I think what he's saying is when you're in between times, a normal practice ought to be to confess to one another and pray for one another. In other words, humbling ourselves in the presence 
of other Jesus followers on a regular basis. One another is all about mutuality. There's a a number of one another's in the New Testament. Go check them out sometime. We don't have time to dig into them. But it's, it's always about this mutual support, this mutual coming together. Love one another. Show hospitality to one another. Here he says, confess to one another. Uh, the, the translation is usually, you know, admit wrongdoing or sin. It has a sense of declaring openly, of being transparent about your sin. It's rooted in a sense of agreement. Right? That you would agree with the reality. Yes, you've sinned. You're not denying it. You're not defensive about it. You admit it. Yes, it is true of me. I sinned has that sense to it. There, there's, there's always this public sense to it, but I don't think that requires a large gathering. And in fact, that is necessary sometimes. You know, the general rule is as far as your offense has traveled, as many as could be impacted by your sin, those are who you ought to confess it to. So someone, it's not inappropriate for someone in leadership when they have sinned to stand and acknowledge it. Right? It's not inappropriate for someone when they have engaged in a sin that could become scandalous to stand and acknowledge and confess it. That, that doesn't mean that you know, every time you say a harsh word to your wife, you need to come and publicly confess it. But it ought to be something you consider sharing with at least a few other trusted friends. Especially if it's a pattern. Because you need accountability. You, you need not just that for them to follow up with you, but brothers and sisters, you need to, to lo- let go of the burden you carry. You need to be able to say to someone else, this, I've sinned in this way. For them to say, isn't it good that Jesus forgives that too? And I still love you anyway. Do you realize the power. We often get this backwards, right? We think that if we confess sin, if we admit to vulnerability and weakness, that, that people will go away from us. That people will reject us. And there are a few who will do that. But I dare say they don't know Jesus if that's where they're at. Because if we know Jesus and we come from a position of I need His forgiveness, I need His healing, it's rooted in an openness about our sin before the God of all creation. And if we are in a community that says that's what we believe, then to share it with another believer is not to make light of it, but to say, yeah, that's really hard. And I'm still not going to leave you. Because we're repentant, right? The problem with sin that gets you cut off is that you don't repent. You remain hard-hearted. That's a message for another day. For right now, this this idea of getting more vulnerable with trustworthy people, I want to say it it always deepens relationships. If you can get together with trusted people and, and, and share what's really going on in your life, really share your struggles, you grow deeper in your relationship. In the youth uh, ministry, we've been studying peacemaking this last year, and one of the vignettes just really struck me, and this is like now the third time they've heard it, so sorry. 
young people. But there's this one, and it's just kids from high school acting out these uh, skits, essentially. They're pretty well done. This one was one of the best, I thought, uh, acting-wise and all that kind of stuff, right? But there's, there's a table of uh, teenagers in a school, you know, and they're just together, and they're just laughing and having fun. And one young lady tells a joke at someone else's expense talking about someone being so short that, you know, they're even shorter than so-and-so's grades if they were height, right? Just boom, and you could just see like, oh man, that killed him, right? Shamed, you know, no one knew his struggles with grades and everything she did and she kind of just threw that out there to get a laugh and it hurt him. A little while later he goes and says, you know, that really hurt and she's like, Psh, I was just joking, you know, dismisses it. And he's heads down even lower she goes home, you know, she, she, you know this, this is what, what you do in a drama like this, right? You condense time and everything. She reads the Bible and is like, oh, wow, you know, a verse pops out that really just, like, convicts her. So the next day, she finds him, and he's walking away, you know, head down, and she says, hey, I don't remember his name, Jim, whatever. Um, can I talk to you? And he's like, yeah. She's like, well, let's sit down. And he's sitting there like this, and she's here talking to him, looking at him, and he's looking down. And she begins to speak about the events of yesterday and what she did, and his, his head gets lower. And she says, I was an idiot. And his head goes like this. I was wrong. You see what happened right there? She confesses her sin, especially against him, but it doesn't have to just be against him. She confesses that she's a broken human being. The, the truth that we're afraid to admit to everyone else, she admits it. She admits not only that she's a broken sinner, that, that, that she needs his forgiveness. And he lifts up his head and he looks at her. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is what God does for us, right? When we admit this is who we are, he's like, yes. You are, and I'm looking right at you, and I forgive you, and our heads are lifted up. If we do that for one another, it lifts all of our heads up, not to glory in our sin, but to say there's forgiveness, there's love, there's acceptance. That's the awareness we need to bring into everyday life. That's why we need to be confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another that we would be aware of God's forgiveness. That this is the God who forgives sin. This is the God who is full of mercy. This is the God who accepts you through Jesus, because of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, by Jesus' work on the cross, if you would just believe in Jesus through Him. This is the God you know, our, de our definition of prayer then is this. Prayer is an offering up our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. You don't need to write all that down because I actually stole this from the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number 98. <laughs> what a coincidence. It actually fits. I never saw this before. It totally maps onto this passage as well as the rest of Scripture, right? That this is prayer, offering our desires unto God, acknowledging Him, 
God, this is what I want. This is what I long for. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? Agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, we have no other way of accessing God, approaching God. Certainly can't do it in your name, can't do it in my name, can't do it in the name of the elders. The only way to approach God is through Christ because our sin cuts us off from him, but through Christ, we are forgiven. So we confess our sins and we are thankfully acknowledging his mercies. That's prayer. You want to tap into the prayer. Get those things in there. Google Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 98, and and put it on a card or something or write it out. Offering our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, confessing our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's how we tap into the power. That doesn't mean that we'll get the outcomes we will want, but actually it does mean we will get the outcomes we want. Because the thing that happens is as we more and more line up with God and more and more make his will the, the, the overriding desire of our hearts, just think about this. If you were completely aligned with God's will and you only wanted what was God's will, you would get every prayer answered. Think about that. That is mind-boggling. So if your prayers aren't getting answered, that means maybe two things, right? One is, you're not asking for things according to his will, or he's saying, maybe a little later. So as we approach God with that in mind, right, as we more and more are willing to see God's will be done, what happens is, whatever changes in our circumstances around us, something profound changes within us we are more and more like, uh, like the, the strings of a piano aligning with a pitchfork and starting to resonate. We are more and more resonating with God's will. We are more and more finding our prayers getting answered because our prayers aren't merely for this immediate change of circumstances. Our prayers are bigger. Like, Lord, help me to find perseverance through this. Lord, help me to love them well through this challenge. Lord, help them to continue to honor and glorify you as they struggle through this. Lord, give us wisdom. Then we will trust you for that. More and more, finding that to be true, which means you are more and more tapped in to the power of God. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, more and more uh, work in us, shape our hearts to be like yours. That we could sincerely say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, we know that's not a switch that gets flipped. We thank you that as we put our faith in you, you do change and transform us. A lot of that is instantaneous. And yet there's stuff that we struggle with all of our lives. All the more reason we need to find at least a few trustworthy people we can be open and honest and vulnerable with. That we might together grow more and more in line with your will. Lord, help us uh, to honor those elders among us and to acknowledge you by opening up to them as well. Help us, O Lord. praise you. So Lord, 
Isn't that interesting? That you, you say to praise, not when our circumstances are well, but when we are feeling good. And we know we can feel good in any circumstance. Lord, more and more help us to praise you because we are more and more in line with your will and we are more and more feeling good. Even when we feel crummy. We pray, O oh Lord Jesus, you do this work, you continue to do it because we come to you not in our own strength, not for our own sake or our own will, but that your will might be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.